0: Chapter 5 of The Hall in the Grove by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Ward Boys discuss the situation. They were respectively Jim and Joe. It is doubtful if they realized how the full Christian names would sound as applied to themselves. Seventeen years, in fact, nearly eighteen years, had they lounged through the world being familiarly known by those shortened names. Twins they were and the mother who had delighted in them for nearly eight years had suddenly left them. They vividly remembered standing together shivering in the gloom of a rainy autumn day drawing near to its close, and watching with terrific curiosity the ugly-looking box lowered into an uglier-looking hole in the ground, feeling sure that within that box was their mother. Hadn't they seen her lying there?" they vividly remembered how the wind groaned among the leafless branches of the great old tree which stood just at the foot of that awful hole they vividly remembered just how the feet of the bearers sounded as they shuffled through the dulled yellow and brown leaves that bestrewed their path i don't think that either of them in all the intervening years had ever listened to the toll of the church-bell without being carried instantly back to that day and that box and that hole and thinking just how the earth sounded on the box as the sexton rattled it in and the minister said earth to earth ashes to ashes dust to dust there were certain other things about those early days that they vividly remembered for instance their mother's kisses for she had been a mother who had kissed them often and tenderly stealing sweet little chances to do it when she washed their faces and brushed their brown curls for in those days they had brown curls she had not said jim and joe but jamie dear and little josie sometimes in especially gloomy weather nights when the lights were out they almost fancied they could hear her voice but they never spoke of these things to each other they never heard the diminutive names any more and they had never since she went away received any of those little tendernesses which boys as they grow older are half-ashamed of, and always love. Their father was a good sort of dull man, silent by nature, repressive, loving his wife and mourning her truly, yet never speaking to her of his love, nor showing it in a hundred nameless ways dear to a wife's heart, rarely speaking of her after she was gone, loving his children truly, yet showing it as little." silent at home and dreary, apt to speak sternly when he spoke at all, absorbed in business, disliking noise whether it were made by shouting and loud laughter or by quarrelling, equally stern in hushing both. I do not know that it is much wonder that his boys grew up unacquainted with him, shrinking away from him, seeking to find their pleasures elsewhere than in the dreary house, nor do I much wonder that they were a sore disappointment to their father." Perhaps it was in the inevitable nature of things that these two results should be. I know they would have been surprised and incredulous had any one hinted to them that their father loved them. He was invariably severe nowadays. Not that they wondered much at that, they knew as well as any persons could that they had grown up to be street loungers, with nothing in or about them to admire there were times in the darkness of those nights of which i spoke that they were sorry for this result but this they never said to each other on the particular evening in which i introduced them to you they were sitting in their own room a dingy room it was in fact it was that dreariest sort of a room one where there was furniture and material enough out of which to make a pleasant place had only skillful and also loving hands had to do with it as it was the carpet was dingy not only with long use but with careless sweeping the chairs were broken or maimed the bedstead had lost part of its lower posts the bed was spread up with a dark blue and brown comforter while clothing and toilet articles and old boots and old hats lay about it in wild and at the same time desolate confusion a mother would have known that no mother ever entered that room for that matter there are some fathers who would have been sure that no father came either and they would have been correct mr ward long ago ceased to look for his children in their room something of interest was being discussed or at least considered jim his feet lifted to a comfortable position on the table before him in dangerous proximity to the smoky lamp thoughtfully chewed an unusually large quid of tobacco while he gazed at a sheet of note paper whereon certain lines were written in a delicate feminine hand, What is this CLSC, anyhow? It was the smaller, and though they were twins, what appeared to be the younger brother Joe who asked the question. He sat just across the table, meditatively nursing his knee, his eyes fixed on an envelope which had evidently covered the letter, and which was addressed, Messrs. James and Joseph Ward. "'Well,' said James, withdrawing his limbs from the table, and spitting vigorously before he answered, "'it's a sort of a literary society, just as she says. You read the letter.' "'But what do you suppose it's all about?' "'Why, it's for fun as much as anything, most likely. There are different ways of having that article, you know. I think likely it is made up of a kind of people that get most of their fun out of books. They discuss things, I presume, like a debating society, or something of that sort. This Chautauqua is a kind of camp-meeting place. I heard Bob Fenton telling the boys in the store something about it last week. Crowds go there every summer, and have a kind of a genteel spree. I don't know what they do. It isn't exactly a camp-meeting, for he was telling of some very funny times they had there, comic lectures and the like. There's a fellow who makes pictures with chalk quicker than lightning." real good likenesses, too, so that the folks recognize them. I couldn't make out quite what it all was, but I know this thing, this CLQPX, whatever it is, is mixed up with it. Bob seemed to think it would be jolly, but then he is all for books. That's a cute youngster, that Bob Fenton. He is better company now than lots of the older fellows.' How would young Robert's mother's heart have throbbed in foreboding, could she have heard that admiring sentence about her cherished boy? Well for Mrs. Fenton that she had designs, real motherly designs, on the ward boys, and had already spread her net to try to catch them. She may do more toward a shield for her own boy Robert, by this movement, than she will ever know of this side heaven.' not that the ward boys mean to do him harm, but they have been street loungers, not to use a harsher term than that, for several years, and they have already discovered that Bob is a cute fellow. The boys had company this evening. He sat now in his favorite lounging attitude, his elbow leaning on the dusty table, his frowsy head leaning on his hand, while with the fingers of the other hand he beat a tattoo on the table, leaving marks of his fingers in the dust this was Paul Adams. How he chanced to be given a name which was so utterly at variance with his character would be a mystery if sensible people had the naming of children and were in the habit of waiting to see in what direction they would develop before settling that important question. However, I do not know that people who were acquainted with Paul Adams's mother ever wondered at her choice of name. He was her one treasure in what had been to her a world of trial and disappointment. He was but a cooing baby when his father died suddenly and violently, leaving Mrs. Adams to take up life's burden alone, and support herself and baby as best she might. This is such a commonplace statement that it will at once commend itself to you as true. I suppose there is hardly a person in the world who cannot recall a history similar to this." in spite of which fact, each person's sorrow remains distinct and individual. Such things refuse to be lumped, and still the old heart-cry goes on, "'There is no sorrow like unto my sorrow!' Mrs. Adams had a little bit of a neat house and a tiny garden to help her along, but there had been times when she had mournfully said, "'If it were not for my house I would go away and try to get work somewhere else,' but it seems as though i must stick by my place to live in though i can't eat it nor burn it from such a home as you can imagine that to be had paul adams come up until he was in his eighteenth year a queer boy was paul his mother was the only one who wouldn't own and yet certainly she was the only one who was keenly alive to the fact that he was a disappointment in her way she was as careful a mother as mrs fenton She had spent hours over the darning and patching that she patiently did for him, forming plans for his future, plans to give him an education, to start him in the world, to make life brighter for him than it had ever been for her. This was when he was a little boy. She had struggled and sacrificed in order to keep him neatly clothed, and to give him tastes now and then of what other happier boys with fathers had to brighten their lives secretly she had earnestly desired that he would grow up to be a great man yet she was a true mother in that she put first of all the desire that he should be a good man for this she worked the hardest in her weak timid way often and often she read over the story of his namesake paul the apostle glorying in the power and moral grandeur of that character It was a dim memory of this great man that had caused her to name her two-days-old baby Paul. Perhaps the very absence of courage in her own nature made her long the more ardently to see it develop in her boy. But it gradually became apparent, even to her, that there were certain things that Paul would not do. In the first place, he would not take kindly to the idea of an education. To be sure, his opportunities had been confined to the commonest of country schools, with one of those poor drudges for a teacher who taught because she knew nothing else to do to keep soul and body together, and who concentrated all the powers of her being in a grand hatred of her work. But the fact remained that others had come out, even from such teaching, with a passably fair start on the road to learning and had acquitted themselves with credit afterwards in the academy ten miles distant, which was the centre of Mrs. Adams's educational aspirations. Paul was not a credit to himself during the days which he spent in the stuffy schoolroom full of vile smells and flies in summer, and slippery with mud and snow in winter. He whittled much, he made and threw many paper balls, he ate many apples, he tripped the feet of any careless boy who passed that way. But as to studying, he did just as little of that as possible, and made so uncreditable an appearance on examination days, that when he was fourteen his discouraged mother took him out of school altogether, and set him to hoeing in the garden. This was less trying to his nerves than the schoolroom. Still it was anything but a desirable life, and young Paul soon learned how to manage, so as to get along with very little exercise of that kind. Not that he ever refused to work, when his mother hinted that the garden ought to be hoed, he went at it. The main trouble lay in the fact that he did not stay at it. Long before noon, his hoe would be found sticking in a hill of potatoes, and Paul himself would be down at the corner, lounging on the steps of the largest grocery in the town." In short, from any standpoint that you were pleased to look at him, Paul was a bitter disappointment to his mother. Perhaps, if it were not a strange thing to say, I might also hint that his mother was in a sense a disappointment to Paul. She never scolded him outright, but she made endless whining talks at him that sometimes drove him as near to distraction as a good-natured boy can come. By means of these weak talks, she led him gradually to feel that the ugly little kitchen in which she sat and sewed was the most dismal and hopeless spot in all the wide world, and every opportunity was to be seized for escaping from its atmosphere. Yet his mother would have promptly and unquestioningly have given up her life at any time to save his. She loved him so, and certainly he, in his lazy fashion, loved his mother." If the mother had known the truth concerning him, the reason for his utter lack of application at school was not because he had not fair mental powers, but because he had failed to see any occasion for using them in that direction. The teachers into whose hands he had fallen had an utterly unfascinating way of presenting truths." To Paul's mental vision, there was simply a confused drawl of words to spell, and words to read, and figures to count, without a suggestion as to how they were to be applied outside of the spelling-book or arithmetic. Paul could not see any way in which they would be likely to help him either to hoe the garden, or get rid of hoeing it. He had no occasion to spell words. Why should he care to know how they were spelled? He had no letters to write, why should he desire to write well? He had no calculations to make, nothing to buy, or what was equally to the point, nothing to buy with. What earthly difference could it make to him how much six per cent interest on a certain sum of money would be in a year? Where was the money? Not in his hands certainly, nor in his mother's, and those who had it seemed entirely capable of reckoning its market value without his help. This was the way that young Paul had reasoned. Not aloud, mind you, he knew various platitudes that might be urged against this sort of talk had he ventured to produce it. They did not strike him as having any direct bearing on himself, and he didn't want to hear them. All he wanted of life was a good time, and, let alone, he fancied that he might be able to make one. The fact is, Paul Adams' faculties were all asleep and nobody with whom he came in contact had brains enough to awaken them, or interest enough in him to try. Which was it? His religious education was not one whit in advance of the intellectual. Not that in this his mother could not have been his teacher, at least in a degree, for through all the trials of her life she had kept an abiding faith in her Lord and was absolutely certain at times of this one thing, that a crown of life was laid up for her. For sure she was that she should love his appearing. Yet she was like many another Christian, in that the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of poverty, had made her look upon the crown and the glory as sure indeed, but so far away that their light was obscured by mountains of daily frets and cares that rose between. Also she was one of those strange mothers, who, though she had an eager, and at times I might almost say, a consuming desire to see her son a Christian, yet never mentioned the subject to him in a direct way, but contented herself with feeble hints which exasperated him. So far as he had been able to discover, religion was a wishy-washy affair, amounting to very little, and that little he neither understood nor cared for. Since the feeble restraint of school days had been withdrawn, and the garden had proved too dull and dreary to endure, and the woodpile, by reason of its smallness, really required very little time, Paul had degenerated into a street loafer. His vices were not strongly marked. As yet, he drank nothing stronger than cider and an occasional glass of beer, the reasons being that he had no money to spend in that direction or any other, And no hereditary tastes in that line to indulge. However, as the force of example was strong about him, his mother lived in constant terror, for she was only too well aware that money seemed always to be forthcoming for the indulgence of such tastes. Every night she went early to her bed in winter to save lights and fuel, and in summer for very weariness of herself. But she lay awake listening for the sound of her boy's footsteps afraid that she would not hear them, that he would be tempted to late hours and the vices which accompany them, afraid to hear them lest they might be staggering, rising on one elbow at last to listen for their nearer approach in an agony of fear and apprehension, and lying down at last with a tremulous, thank God for one more night, when they sounded firmly on the walk. Strange to say, young Paul was rarely out later than ten o'clock, the sole reason being that he had a good-natured desire not to scare his mother. He smoked cigars when he could get them, not that he began by being particularly fond of them, in fact he found it unusually hard work to learn. He had to devote to this accomplishment the courage and perseverance that would have told well for him in other directions, but it is a taste that once acquired a boy will gratify if he can." so to put it in brief at the time our story begins paul adams is an ignorant good-natured tobacco-chewing cigar-smoking street loafer he had one friend in fact i ought to say that he had two friends namely the ward boys it was so rarely that the names of the twins were separated that it seems unnatural to use the singular number in connection with either of them yet it was Jim who contrived to be the leading spirit, both of his brother and of Paul Adams. Not that they were in the least alike, if I must admit the fact, Jim Ward was a quick-witted, energetic young scamp, much farther along on the downhill road than was Paul. Perhaps their intimacy might be explained in part by the fact that it was Ward's nature to lead, and Paul was sufficiently good-natured, as a rule, to allow himself to be led." Occasionally, it is true, he resisted the other with a steady, off hand determination that surprised and vexed him. For instance, there had been plans developed several times that involved staying out nearly, if not quite, all night. Those plans Paul had steadily refused to carry out. All coaxings and all ridicule fell on him unheeded. He good naturedly replied to the one and laughed off the other he simply would not stay out all night nor half the night and scare his mother she has botheration enough the land knows he was wont to explain and i'm bound she shan't have that by degrees the ward boys learned that when paul spoke in that quiet tone which hinted at a sort of reserve strength they might as well coax a stone the trouble was he very rarely used that tone but good-humouredly allowed himself to be led along the downhill road as fast as the ward boys cared to travel without putting forth a hand to hold himself back on the evening in question paul adams as i have said sat in a listless attitude seemingly uninterested in the conversation between the brothers social distinctions are very queer things it is an unspoken but at the same time clearly recognised fact to the ward boys that they were several degrees above Paul Adams. Why, perhaps, would have been somewhat difficult for them to explain. It is true that they lived in a brick-house of large size and respectable appearance, at least below stairs. It is also true that Mr. Ward, Sr. had a respectable bank account, and was adding to it steadily. Yet why these things should have actually added to the importance or social standing of his sons is perhaps a problem." the affirmative answer to it seems, however, to have been accepted by the world. Certainly the ward boys never doubted it, therefore the conversation concerning the CLSC had been carried on entirely between themselves. Presently their guest raised himself to a sitting posture, took deliberate aim, and snapped a peanut-shell so skillfully that it hit Joe on the nose as he said, "'I suppose you would be kind of astonished "'if you knew that I had had a bid to that meeting.' "'You?' "'The tone sufficiently indicated the astonishment. "'Yes, sir, I, "'just as sure as you live and breathe the breath of life. "'It's my opinion that it is a nicer-looking one than yours. "'The writing is nicer anyhow, "'handsome enough to be print. "'Signed with a flourish, too, "'such as they say would be about the hardest a counterfeit "'of any that are made.' I showed it to that new bank clerk this very day, and he said he was pretty good at copying, but he shouldn't like to have to undertake that. Who wrote it? Well, to the best of my knowledge, the man wrote it who signed his name to it. The writing is the same. It's a private letter, you see. None of your circulars. And with visible signs of pride on his face, young Paul unfolded and spread before the two pairs of eyes that immediately bent forward to examine it, a sheet of heavy cream-laid paper, which contained in a few cordial sentences a hearty invitation to be present at the next meeting of the C.L.S.C. to be held at Mrs. Fenton's, signed Gilbert L. Monteith. The ward boys stared at the name, then at each other, with astonished and significant glances. They hardly knew what they thought. Still, whatever they might come to think of it, the present fact was, that, for some reason unknown to them, Paul Adams had been very highly honoured. They could not help having a feeling of respect for a fellow who held in his possession an autograph letter from Dr. Gilbert Monteith. James Ward rose abruptly, strolled to the one window, and looked out into the darkness, while Joe carefully refolded the valuable letter and returned it to the owner. Presently he at the window spoke his mind. "'I tell you what it is, boys,' I for one am going to that meeting. I mean to see what there is of it. I've got a chance to see, and I mean to. You can do as you like, but I intend to go. Up to that moment, Paul Adams had been extremely doubtful about his ever putting in an appearance at the CLSC, whatever that was, but on being appealed to by Joe as to what he was going to do, he replied with alacrity, "'I've no kind of a notion of not going.' Suppose a fellow would slight such an invitation as that. Well, then, said Joe, somewhat ruefully, I don't see, but I've got to go. There's no fun in staying away alone, but I'm blessed if I can see any fun in going. Thus was the momentous question decided. End of chapter 5